Welcome to Felony Friday, a presentation of the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, John Odermatt. Felons, friends, and freedom lovers, thank you for joining me once again for another edition of Felony Friday right here on the Lions of Liberty podcast. This is the show where we strive to expose injustice in this nation's broken criminal justice system. Today, I'm going to be speaking with Shane Casey on Felony Friday. Shane's going to be sharing his story. He's going to be sharing a pretty unbelievable story of how he came to be charged with absolutely horrendous crimes, crimes of child sexual abuse. And he was charged with these crimes without any real evidence whatsoever. Now, this is Shane's first time sharing this story. This will be a two-part episode. In the first part, in today's episode, we're mostly going to focus on the background information. Shane's going to be talking about his life leading up to these charges and how ultimately he ended up being charged with these horrible crimes. In the second part of the episode next week, we'll get into the trial itself and in the aftermath and Shane's status today. I'll introduce Shane in just a minute here. But first, before I do that, I want to let you guys know where you can find the show notes for today's show. This is episode number 51 of Felony Friday. So that means you can find the show notes for this episode at lionsofliberty.com slash FF51. And just one more quick note before we get started here. If you love liberty, please consider visiting igniteliberty.us and ordering a Make Liberty Great Again hat or shirt. All the hats are marked down to $19.95, and by entering discount code HOLIDAY at checkout, you'll get free shipping on your order of hats or shirts, no matter how much stuff you order. So please check that out. Take the fight for liberty to the streets, and let your hat, let your clothing do the talking, let your clothing start your conversations so you can come in and back up the principles yourself later and spread the message of liberty. Thank you, and I hope you enjoy today's show. I first heard of Shane Casey's story from former Felony Friday uh, guest here, Mark Pendergrast. Mark has studied and written extensively about his case, and he told me that he's convinced that Shane Casey was convicted of a crime that he did not commit. Now, I've never met Shane before prior to this interview, but after reading his story, I thought it definitely deserved some more sunlight. To briefly talk about Shane's situation, on July 9th, Shane was released from a Vermont prison. He spent nearly a decade in prison for a crime that he claims he did not commit. In fact, it's highly likely that there was no crime that ever took place in the first place. Casey, along with several hundred other anonymous men, were accused of having raped a young girl, and the only evidence that convicted him was the girl's account. Now, unfortunately, in cases like this, in which DNA evidence has exonerated other people in other situations, that is not the case here. And Casey couldn't and likely can never prove his innocence unequivocally. So, Shane, welcome to Felony Friday. Thank you, John. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. I look forward to uh, shedding any light I can by talking about my story in the hopes that it'll uh, make a difference in others' lives that may be affected by um, the brokenness of our criminal justice system, to put it mildly. (laughs) Absolutely, Shane. And I really do appreciate you coming on. I know uh, we talked a little bit in the pre-show chat, and this isn't something uh, that's easy for you to talk about, I'm sure. 
But before we get started uh, talking about your case, just to give a little background on yourself be- before this all happened, where did you grow up? What was your, uh, you know, what, what was it like growing up? Where, where'd you go to, to school? Sure. Well, I traveled a little bit in my younger years. I was actually born in Manhattan, New York, and uh, my uh, mother and father ended up moving to Florida until I was about three. And then I basically, uh, from there, went to Hollywood, California, where I spent uh, the rest of my younger years, preteen years, in Hollywood. Um, and that was quite a quite a fascinating time in my life. I always have fond memories of. And then I moved to the Cape from there, Massachusetts, into a little uh, village in Hyannis in the, uh, in the town of Barnstable. And I pretty much went to, through high school there and uh, middle school and uh and I stayed there for a while, and um, I actually got married there and didn't even come up to uh, the great state of Vermont where I live now until the year 2000. You did some work, quite a bit of work in human services, working with uh, mentally and developmentally disabled, physically, sexually abused children and uh, young adults. Yes. But I was just curious, you know, how long you were able to do that for, how you got into that career path? Sure. You know, I just, it's funny. I'm glad you asked that because I picked a few pieces of literature that touches just on, I think, the points that you're going to want to uh, touch on today. And one of them is uh, was written um, about my family and what I'm growing up and why I became someone that ended up in the caregiving business, let's say human services. And it's titled Shane's Story. And if I could read this to you real quick. Sure, sure. It'll give you everything I think you're looking for. So I was trying to start a Hathaway Foundation after my mother's maiden name, in honor of them, for this is how they raised me. And I'll, I'll just let me read it, John, okay? Yeah, yeah, go for it. So, the Hathaway Foundation is named in honor and memorial of its founder, Shane Casey's mother's family. Shane's humanitarian legacy began with his grandmother, Minerva Hathaway, who spent her life advocating for the elderly and working with marginalized and challenged people. Her own youngest son was born with a developmental disabilities and Minerva cared for him until her death. Candace, Candy Hathaway, Shane's mother, carried on the traditions of helping others and service to the community through her work with New England Residential Services, caring for severely challenged children and adults. In her private life, Candy was not above approaching homeless people on the street and taking them into her home, sharing what little she had. I'm sorry, I get emotional a little bit. My mom, she passed away, John. So it's okay. And providing the help they needed to get back on their feet. Her compassion and selflessness knew no bounds. But unfortunately, at the age of 55, Candy succumbed to cancer, her personal mission to help others cut short. And this is about me now. Shane was deeply influenced by these two dynamic, tireless, unsung heroines as the came of age. It never occurred to him to pursue the other career than one of those in helping fields. Shane's story as a caregiver began in kindergarten when his teacher paired him with a Korean boy so that he could help him learn to speak English. From that time on, emulating his mother and grandmother, Shane spent much of his youth befriending less fortunate children, visiting and running errands for elderly neighbors and accompanying his mother at events such as the Special Olympics. In 1991, at the age of 22, after spending a year volunteering alongside his mother, working with severely mentally challenged adults, Shane decided he wanted to make a career of helping others. He began working for the medical 
This is on the Cape, by the way, John. New Medical Rehabilitation and Skilled Nursing Center at Lewis Bay in Hyannis, Mass. As a nursing assistant, where he received on-site training for certification as a CNA to work in long-term care facilities throughout Massachusetts. Shane finishes training at the top of his class. At Lewis Bay, Shane was, and it goes on here, it just it tells about my experience and the certificates I, I got and being put with some of the uh, most challenging um, patients because I could speak, like ones that have behavioral problems, I just seemed to be able to reach them and uh, they would calm down. I, and so they always put me on the behavior teams. So to not go through it all, but I, I wanted to get down to uh, about cause the house that I ran right before everything fell apart and then I was, you know, thrown in jail wrongfully. Um, it goes to there. So I thought that would be important to know. So basically throughout my life, I just, I worked in hospitals and, um, you know, I always did something to help others. I tried menial jobs here and there, but my heart always called me back to the uh, caregiving business because I just, that's the only way I feel fulfillment is helping others. So, and being raised by my mom and my grandmother, as I said, um, you know, they really had a great uh, impact on that. So I en ended up finally moving to Vermont when I was uh, in my twenties, late twenties. And uh, I started working at this place here and I'm going to tell you about it now. 1991, it talks about my mother dying from cancer and she died and grieving deeply. I felt very lost there. I wasn't really able to care for people, but this is when it changed. So in 2001, after relocating to Vermont, Shane began working for Upper Valley Services in Moortown as a member of their crisis team. Six months later, he left Upper Valley and took a private position with Bruce Fowler, a Francis Foundation home provider, working with developmentally disabled youth and young adults. As rewarding as that position was, Shane wanted more work, so... A year later, he left Bruce's and took some private geriatric home health aid positions, caring for each until their deaths. His position with Bruce was still open when Shane was looking for work, so he returned to that job. Bruce was about to get ready to retire, so um, some of the kids that he had there, it was a perfect opportunity for me to start what I wanted to do and have my own business, and that's what's going to be the beginning of the Hathaway Foundation, and I'll just explain it here a little bit to you, John. So Bruce was going to retire after 13 years and uh, he decided that you know he didn't want to be the home provider anymore and that um, one of the kids that was living there with him at the time he wanted to know if I wanted to take him and start becoming a home provider so um, that's when you know the whole vision of the Hathaway Foundation start for me and it just grew into having um, a home and a couple of apartments into a wonderful career that uh you know, I was the independent contractor, like five employees at the time. It was, and it was a wonderful experience. So anyway, I don't want to get off track. So just pull me back, John, sometimes. But uh, so basically you can see that basically my whole life was around helping others from, from youth. And, uh, you know, I had some tragedies in my own family. And one of them that I do speak of a lot is, you know, I went through a terrible time where I was uh, sexually abused by an uh, older cousin. And, um, you know, a lot of the uh, in law enforcement, you know, especially prosecutors and they try to use, well, if you are abused, then you must become an abuser and uh, that all people that are basically abused become abusers. And uh, the fact was that I was actually one that became a survivor and uh, from that moment knew that I had to help others, that 
needed my protection like uh, those that are at youth that are at risk or those that are developmentally disabled that can't defend themselves from people that, you know, would take advantage. So you uh, you feel like you turned that that uh, horrible experience into, channeled it into a positive energy trying to help other people? Absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, and there's nothing more important than um, being of service and helping others. And uh, I believe that's what we're here for. So, yeah. So let's pivot towards, you know, your case and everything that happened there. And uh, if you can just start to talk about sort of um, give us the the background of how you met, I think, the the woman you were dating at the time and I guess eventually married. Yes. Stacy Barnitsky. I don't know if I'm saying that correctly. That's correct. And uh, she had a, a daughter at the time. If you can just kind of talk about how you met her and then what led up to marrying her and then get into what transpired from there. Sure. So I met Stacy actually at, it was a, a day treatment program for substance abuse and alcohol. And, uh, you know, I'm very open about the fact that I had struggled with uh, substance abuse from teenage years. So I met her there. It was, uh, it was a 2000. Five, I believe it was. Now I'm thinking. We ended up just dating. And at the time, I was running my home. It was in Montpelier, in Marshfield, in that area, which is central Vermont. And uh, the treatment program was in Burlington, which was, you know, more up north from where we were. So I wanted to get away because I didn't want, I was trying to uh, get help and not allow it to affect the fact that I, you know, was running a business and I never had it around the business. So I, uh, it was just a personal struggle I had. So anyway, so I met her and we started to date and um, I ended up going to, over to her house one night and I met her daughter, my former stepdaughter, and uh, she was very pleasant. And of course, I introduced myself. I mean, I um, at that time, I had three biological children, my own two daughters and a son. And, and then, of course, I worked with kids and, and had worked with kids for years. And uh, just to add a little bit, you know, I have twin sisters that are 14 years younger than me. And uh, that's an important piece to also my story, obviously. And I can get into that later, maybe. So anyway, so it was very polite. And we ended up, uh, I didn't stay. And, you know, honestly, John, uh, to make a long story short with that, I maybe met my uh, former stepdaughter four, five times, maybe a handful of times before she was uh, sent to her dad's in California by her mom. And every time was a very pleasant time. There was one time when she actually overheard her mom and I having sex and she got upset because the, the rooms were connected. And that was about the, the gist of any type of harsh feelings. So it was just so very strange how, how things happened. It was so fast. What's the time frame like here? You, you met Stacy yeah. in like 2005. At what point did you get married? Is that... Right. So, Year well, so I met Stacy, we're kind of dating and, uh, I was, uh, breaking up with in a relationship. And so I wasn't really committing to anything. And, uh, it wasn't until, um, it was weird. So to make it really clear. So I met Stacy was like August, I believe it was August, September of 2005 at the treatment. And, uh, I saw her over a period of time from then till December, I think of 2005, you know, not more than seven or eight times. And out of that time, I, I, like I said, I maybe saw her daughter four or five times at her house. So anyway, I, there was a period of time where I didn't talk to her. And I guess she had gone away to treatment for her alcohol. 
and that's when she had uh, sent her daughter to her, her father's in California. And uh, I got a call. It was actually 2006 now. I got a call. It was in May. I believe it was April or May from her saying that she um, missed me and that she wanted to marry me. And I know it sounds crazy, John, but uh, I had just walked out of the hospital and was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. So, wow. yeah. So I kind of, I just was in shock and I didn't say yes then. So anyway, we started seeing each other more and the relationship I was in had broken off. And I said, okay, you know, I'll marry you under one condition. And, and I wasn't thinking straight then. If something happens to me and I die, because I was really sick, it was a terrible, massive exacerbation before I was diagnosed, I had all kinds of symptoms. And uh, so she said, sure. And, you know, so we got married. And the next thing you know, she gets pregnant with our son. And um, that was in 2006. And just to, I could just fill in some pieces with you to get a little bit of understanding as to how this whole thing evolved kind of into this ugly monster that it did. So she told her daughter that we were going to get married when she was gone to her father's in California. And uh, as an only child through her father and mother, she had other siblings through her father's other marriage, but didn't really know them well. And uh, so her mother basically sent her out there and said she's going to get her back. And she never did. And she married me and her, her daughter got really upset about that and uh, very disturbed by it and, and cried to come home. And so I actually ended up buying a plane ticket. That was in 2006, that summer, and I had talked to her father, and I said, you know, I bought a plane ticket for her to come back, and he said, sure, that's fine, and, but as long as uh, her mother isn't drinking, Stacy, and I said, I understand, you know, I run a home with kids, and, you know, I wouldn't allow her to have alcohol, and, uh, of course, she was hiding it, but anyway, um, so her daughter never ended up coming back because her father didn't believe um, that she was sober, her mother, and uh, the next call that she had gotten was that her mother was pregnant with our son, Aaron, and she pretty much was in shock, and she wanted to come home, and she was very angry, and that was coming into uh, 2000, well, it was 2007, my son was born, so she started going downhill out there, where she was living with her dad in California, and her grades were dropping, I don't know if... Uh, market filled you in on that story or not, but it was a classic symptom of a child rebelling, feeling abandoned by a parent and then being replaced by a, another man and another child, basically. So she had real problems uh, in school and lying and cheating and forging her, her dad's names on paperwork from home to not get in trouble. And uh, unbeknownst to me, the whole time, I didn't know this, uh, John, before I even married Stacy. Her father, they had separated. They had a bad separation where they were living in California with her there. And then her mother took her and took off to England, which was where she was originally from. And her, her dad wasn't very happy about that. So he, he um, hired an attorney. And over the years, and I didn't know this, he was trying to get her and get full custody. But Every time they had, they would have checks done by welfare checks, they'd always find nothing wrong, mm -hmm. and there was no reason to take uh, her daughter away from her. So this was all going on the whole time, and uh, needless to say, prior to this whole thing starting to come out, I had talked to uh, my uh, 
former ex- my ex-wife, God rest her soul. She, I think you know she had killed herself. I maybe might mention that. Uh, it's in the article, I think. Anyway, I had mentioned her, well, why don't we move to California so you can be closer to your daughter? And uh, it wasn't within two weeks of me saying that and her telling her, probably told her dad that uh, this heightened, uh, this actually started to get worse, you know, as far as uh, her being pressured by her father to tell him something that must have happened to her because of the bad grades and her, and her behavior and all that. And uh, I mean, clearly with a child crying out, if anybody knows children, you don't rep a child from a parent that had raised them and send them off and then replace them with another child and a new man. Mm-hmm. But anyway, uh, so this whole thing started to just unfold. This was like uh, 2007 now we're going into. And uh, so she never comes home and she's really upset. And the next thing you know, October, I think it was 2007, comes around uh, or around Thanksgiving. My memory's, uh, sorry. All of a sudden, I'm, I'm sitting at, at a person's house watching it and detectives show up and start questioning me about uh, something happening to uh, my former stepdaughter. And uh, they needed my help to see if I could try to help find out. So that was the beginning of uh, when everything just kind of went down hill even further and uh so at the outset the detectives didn't they didn't say that you could be implicated or they were investigating you they just asked for your help yeah they were just asked for my help and but you know they they kept having repetitive questions and so finally i'm like wait a minute are you trying to accuse me and uh they said well actually we are and in fact we have physical evidence that something had happened there's a uh, ripping and tearing and scarring and, you know, all this stuff. And I'm, and I'm like freaking out at that point. I started crying. I was angry. I said, who did this? And uh, if it's her father, I swear I'll go out there and kill him, fly out to California, uh, anything I can do to help. Then they said, well, it's actually, you know, we're blaming you. But we don't think that you're actually, you know, you, you actually were the one that initiated it. We think that Stacy's behind it and that uh, she convinced you to do this. And I said, absolutely not. And I said, if you knew what I did for work and if you talked to the place where I used to contract through, children I cared for and uh, my whole history uh, in life of helping. Um, I, I had 14. Uh, I said, I have sisters that are 14 years younger than me. And I said, I used to babysit them. And I said, uh, if you know anything about someone that would do something to a child that you're saying, it would start a lot sooner and they would have some tray somewhere. And here I am, you know, I have nothing but support from all of like my sisters, their friends. Uh, I could go, I have letters, John, from all their friends, from tons of people uh, just supporting me on the fact that it was just ludicrous what they were saying. So I just, you know, I just didn't think anything of it. I was just really distraught by it. And um, time went on. And the next thing you know, I'm getting calls from Detective Burnham. He was the lead detective on the case. And uh, he was saying, you know, we would like you to come in and do a polygraph. And all. So I said, sure, I'll do that. And, uh, and then um, that had changed. Did you have a lawyer at the time when you're going through all this or, or no? No, I didn't. I was naive, unfortunately, to uh, how <laughs> twisted our criminal justice system can be and what it really is, not what people think it is. And I, I can get into that a little bit, too, at some point. So no, I didn't. And I, I, I was just, I couldn't believe it. You know, I was just like, I was wanting to help and I wanted to get to the bottom of it because 
they had me under the belief the whole time, John, that this uh, a young child had been brutally raped, you know, I mean, ripped and torn apart and just horrible things that, you know, after what I had been through and I, other kids that I cared for that I, you know, it just, uh, it was horrifying. And I, so I was under this whole belief that this was going on. So I wanted to help in any way and, and clear, you know, I didn't have nothing to hide. And so sure, you know, I'm willing to help, you know, of course I know better now, unfortunately, but so I ended up, uh, something happened where I know it was, uh, they went into my storage that I had and they had a search warrant and I had a, a box of Christmas presents for my uh, three older children. From, that was from another marriage. And um, they ended up ripping that box open and tearing in the presents, looking for uh, what I later found out to be the diary, which, uh, which is an unbelievable joke. And I'll tell you about that. But You can just say now, what, so what was the diary? So come to find out, her daughter had a, a diary, allegedly, that she had kept track of um, all the times things had happened to her. And uh, this is what came out later. And that she, um, this diary she had both in England and Vermont. And it, uh, it had like tally marks in it and uh, all these things, like checks that you would, you know, every time something happened, this would. Anyway, at the end of it all, long story short on that one, Nothing she had said existed in that diary from her initial statement. That was like their big piece of alleged evidence that they had against me. And um, what it ended up turning out to be was uh, it was a book with shapes in it. And it had also sayings about how wonderful her mother was and how she's the best mom in the whole world. And uh, it was a really just a, a normal kid's diary. And... About the time she met me, you could see in the diary entry that uh, she starts to get upset and says that my mom is the best mom in the whole world and she's mine. I repeat, just mine, nobody else's. So basically, you know, you could see right there that there was starting a change. That she was, you know, she, she didn't want to, her mother was her only mom. She raised, she wasn't with anybody else but her dad and uh, for any length of period of time. So she didn't, she felt threatened. So anyway, when this diary comes out finally, and it ends up being um, this shape book, which it says in the diary itself, it says uh, my shape book, S-H-A-P-E. Some people confuse it with an R maybe, my share book, but clearly it doesn't say my shame book. And uh, what happened was this diary was taken and they found and they were, they were all happy because they, they didn't have anything, obviously, because nothing happened. <laughs> <clears throat> so they took this diary, they found it, and the lead detective, Lance Burnham, calls David Bustillos, who's now passed away, her father. And uh, I, I don't know if I can say, I mean, he's passed away now. I don't know if he, but You can say his name. I don't see him. So he calls him and says directly to him, we found her shame book. And her father, she's nearby, I guess, asks her, oh, about your shame book. And she repeats, yes, that's my Shane book, which later she uh, actually said on the stand that it never did say that. It said my shape book, but, but in her mind it meant that. But anyway, so this diary was a big piece of, of evidence in the case, and it actually, the dates in the diary, John, were predated before me. This diary existed, I never saw it, and the actual entry was maybe one about me in the end, you could see where it was uh, her being upset because I was taking her mom away. 
And also, there was nothing she had said that was in the diary, but yet they turned it into this piece where she had made all these markings. And, uh, and the sad part about it was that the dates that were in the diary, I was actually in the state of New Jersey waiting for my, uh, I was before Stacy, uh, waiting for my um, girlfriend at the time coming back from visiting somebody in France. And uh, she ended up getting picked up from an old, old warrant, I guess, in Pennsylvania or something years prior. And they held her there. And I went and got her. And I was there for a good period of that time that allegedly I, I was uh, doing these things to my former stepdaughter. So you were actually out of the country? <laughs> well, I was actually out of, I was not in Vermont, I was in New Jersey. Oh, New Jersey. And okay, uh, gotcha. I actually had, uh, at the time I had my business, I had some of my employees watching um, the uh, people I cared for while I was gone. And uh, I actually could have had one of them testify, but um, they ended up getting cold feet and uh, kind of backed out. But I had proof that I wasn't even there for some of them. But anyway, they ended up twisting all that up, John, in there. And they, they ended up taking the, this diary. And they, uh, you could see that clearly the dates were written and everything was written you know, on those dates. And they turned it into, well, she didn't really mean that those were the dates that things happened. She was strategically putting these marks that didn't exist when they finally you know, found the diary and uh, on to these other dates. And it's mind-boggling what they can do. Thank you all for listening to today's show. I'm going to save my thoughts on Shane's case here until after part two of this episode airs next Friday. So I do want to pass on some quick programming notes before I let you guys go here. For those of you who have been listening to the Lines of Liberty podcast for years now, then you're probably wondering, where's our naughty or nice episode? This is a holiday tradition here at Felony Friday. Every year around the holidays, normally before Christmas, this time it's going to air right after Christmas, is our Naughty or Nice episode. This is the show where we review the year in politics and we give grades to a bunch of different characters in politics. I'm sure you can imagine that we're going to be talking about Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton, Donald Trump, all the big players. We're going to be giving them grades on their conduct over the past year if they were naughty or nice. So please, you're not going to miss that show. It's going to air on Monday, 1226. Now, for you guys who are new to Lines of Liberty, new to Felony Friday, if you want to check out some of the previous episodes here at Lions of Liberty, you can find the entire podcast archive at lionsofliberty.com slash podcast, and you can find just the Felony Friday archive at felonyfriday.com. Also, if you have any comments or feedback or any sort of stuff like that, if you have some ideas for guests, you can shoot me an email to felonyfriday at lionsofliberty.com. Also, a good way to uh, stay in the loop with us, to chat with us, to uh, discuss the ideas of liberty, you can do so online at our Facebook forum, the Lions of Liberty Forum. And you can join that by going to Facebook and typing in the search bar at the top Lions of Liberty Forum. Click join and we will get you accepted as long as your profile looks like a real person. Two more things. If you haven't subscribed yet to Lions of Liberty on iTunes, please do that. Shoot us a nice review and give us a five-star rating. And also, please follow us on Facebook and on Twitter. Our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Lions of Liberty. Twitter, twitter.com slash Lions of Liberty. That is all I have for today, guys. Thank you so much for listening. This is John Odermatt signing off. Always remember to keep your head up and the fires of liberty burning. <laughs>